live the case for canada featuring daniel mandelbaum and mark pavlavopoulos daniel is a canadian immigration attorney and many of you know mark um, who is the ceo of syndesis and path to canada um, wanted to have them on here today as we start to talk about options for those of you who have a failed h1b lottery those of you who are experiencing H-1B fatigue here in the U.S., and also some of you whose status here in the U.S. may be uncertain. But before we get started, I'd like to ask you, if you haven't already, to please subscribe to the H-1B Guy channel here on YouTube and like this video so that I can continue to produce more content like this for you. I also wanted to mention the H-1B Guy offers a variety of consulting services. I help businesses and individuals solve complex work authorization issues in the recruitment process while bringing awareness to employment-based immigration benefits. If I can help you, please reach out. I'd love to hear how. And you can book an appointment directly with me via the h1bguide.com. Today's live stream is proudly brought to you by Syndesis and Path to Canada, the ideal plan B for high-skilled immigrants currently located in the U.S. whose status may be uncertain, and also by perm-ads.com, the industry leader in providing a seamless experience for employers and immigration attorneys navigating the complex perm recruitment ad phase of the labor certification process. Well, we are a week removed from the H-1B lottery portal for fiscal year 2023, opening up for paper applications. Uh, news started to come down on Friday, March 25th, um, about the selection which had taken place. And there's been a lot of circulation and uh, rumors around how many applications were actually received for fiscal year's 2023 H-1B lottery. And I have not seen any official results that have been produced by USCIS but from what I'm hearing, it was anywhere estimated to be anywhere between 300,000 to 400,000 submissions for this year's lottery. And for those of you who have kept up with this channel for any amount of time, um, you're well aware that in 2020, for fiscal year 2021, USCIS mandated an electronic selection process, uh, which subsequently led to 275,000 plus applications that year. Fast forward to uh, fiscal year 2022, which was a lottery that was held in 2021, and there were over 308,000 applications uh, for last year's lottery, which also led to three lotteries being held. Um, so the uniqueness of this is that we continue to see extensive demand surrounding the H-1B lottery. When we're talking about 300,000 plus applications for 85,000 slots, it lends itself to a very low probability, that probability anywhere between 25 to 30%. So as we begin to peel that back, and for a lot of you who are uh, recently come to this channel, um, who have been following along very closely as we've been talking about the H-1B lottery for the better part of the last three to four months, um, and now you've found out that you were not selected and you're wondering what your options are. Uh, many of you have asked me, do I believe that there will be a second lottery held? That, that answer is yes. I think we've seen um, the last two years of 
three lotteries held last year, two lotteries held in the, the previous year. So ultimately what's, what's happened here is the demand is there. A lot of applications, a lot of names being submitted in. But from that, what's happening is once those names are selected, the actual application rate has, has dr dropped drastically. And so because of that, it really is a low barrier to entry for employers, a $10 non-refundable fee, and individuals can have as many employers as they want submit their name into the lottery. And so now the question becomes, what's next, right? And the what's next is, I know that my, my case was not picked up this year. I know that I'm an OPT who potentially cannot wait for a, a second or third lottery to be held. I know I'm an OPT STEM who's experiencing an expiration. And so now I'm U.S. educated. I've worked in the U.S. for two to three years. I'm somewhere between my early mid-20s to early 30s. And I'm wondering what my options are. And so this is where my good friend Mark and his team at, at Path to Canada and Synthesis come into play. Um, I've had Mark on the channel a couple times and we've talked about the business and how they help U.S. employers and U.S. individuals uh, navigate this process and that the demand for Canada is just as great as it is here in the U.S. We've talked about the pros and the cons of living in the, in the U.S. versus Canada. We've talked about the benefits of being a permanent resident in Canada. Uh, we've covered a lot of that, but we wanted to have Daniel on today uh, to provide a little color and context around Canadian immigration law and some of the process around that. And so I had the opportunity through Mark to be introduced to Daniel um, several months ago, and this has taken quite, quite a while now for us to get Daniel here on the channel. And um, for those of you who are watching on my YouTube channel, this is also being streamed out on um, Mark's YouTube channel, as well as uh, the Sandisa profile catch or, or watch a date. Um, you know, really appreciate taking the time to, to tune in. Um, but I wanted to, to take a minute here and um, introduce Daniel Mandelbaum. Daniel is a Canadian immigration attorney. Uh, he works very closely with the team at Syndesis and Path to Canada. Um, he is the subject matter expert when it comes to Canadian immigration law and the processes around the how-to. So Daniel, I wanted to turn it over to you. If you could give us a little insight about um, Mandelbaum Immigration Lawyers, your firm that, that you have in Canada, um, if you can let us know how, how long have you been doing this? Thank you so much, Robert. First, I want to thank you for inviting me. Uh, I know it's been a while since we initially connected and we started discussing uh, me appearing on your channel. And uh, I really think that the delay was probably worth it because we were at an, uh, an ideal time to be discussing this topic right at the H1B season mark. So it really is a, a great time to talk um, about it. Um, my law firm practices both Canadian and U.S. immigration. Uh, we're based in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and I do have an associate attorney in the New York City area as well, practicing U.S. immigration. Uh, I have been practicing what we would consider to be business or corporate immigration law for the last 10 years. 
um, and I have been working closely with um, Mark and his team um, for about five years or so. I believe that's the, we're coming up on an anniversary soon, Mark, yeah. And over that period of time, I've been able to see uh, the challenges that people face, um, skilled workers, high-tech workers in the United States, and simultaneously watch as Canada has made its immigration system a lot friendlier and more attractive in order to attract high-skilled tech workers, in particular, to Canada. And the comparison between the two, which I will outline for you in your audience today, is really night and day, Rob. Very much so. So been an attorney for 10 years, seen a lot of changes that have occurred not only in the U.S., high-skilled immigration climate, but as well as as the Canadian immigration climate. And I, I know that we've talked about this before. There's there's two really primary um, modes to immigrate or processes, if you will, to immigrate with with to Canada via, you know, uh, if, if you are a high-skilled immigrant. Specifically, we've talked about the global talent stream, GTS, um, and we've also talked about express entry. Mm -hmm. um, global talent stream, from my understanding, is a is a, a slightly newer method. Is is that correct? When, when was GTS imp implemented, Daniel? When did that begin? It began as a pilot project, actually, initially in 2017. It ran for a couple of years while the government was evaluating its uh, successes, um, and it became a permanent uh, program for high skilled tech workers to obtain permanent residency. Um, in 2019, um, at the end of the pilot. Uh, the reason it became permanent was because the program was so successful at attracting top talent and encouraging Canadian companies that were hiring them to invest in the skills and training of other Canadian citizens and permanent residents and in the growth of their companies. It also led to some major, major U.S. corporations agreeing to expand their offices into Canada and it just seemed uh, right up until uh, the end of last year, a constant parade of, you know, your top 10 tech companies making announcement after announcement after announcement that they're going to hire and grow their offices in Canada. Uh, mm -hmm. So I, I think the program has been a great success uh, for Canada, for businesses expanding into Canada, and also for high-skilled foreign tech workers who are seeking a foothold in North America. Mm. And then what about express entry? When, when was that put into place? The express entry system launched in early 2015. It mm -hmm. was an extension of existing uh, immigration programs. And what I mean by that is we had the fundamental programs for skilled workers before 2015. All right. Mm -hmm. So we had uh, the core programs, federal skilled worker, Canadian experience class, uh, something we call federal skilled trades and provincial nominee programs. Those all mm -hmm. existed, um, some of them as far back as the 1960s. Express entry was a system for helping the government to manage those four programs, and it mm -hmm. changed the way a person could apply, and that was in 2015. It's undergone a few revisions over the past uh, you know, seven years, um, but fundamentally the idea of having a system where um, you are – uh, expressing an interest in coming to Canada and then the government inviting you, that came into play in 2015. 
So if I'm a high skilled immigrant here in the U.S. or maybe even outside of the U.S., is there a preferred method? Like is GTS better? Is express entry better? Like, I I don't know what you tell me, which, which do I prefer? Yeah, it's a great question. So the, the first thing is I don't prefer the U.S. immigration system. As you already pointed out, um, yeah. you have a cap um, total of 85,000 lottery spots available, 65,000 mm. of which are open to all candidates, 20,000 of which are open only to those with a master's degrees from the United States. Um, over 300,000 easily applied this year. I, I agree with your assessment mm-hmm. on, on, on the likelihood of that. And who knows how many more, I believe hundreds of thousands were discouraged from even attempting to apply, knowing that the lottery odds weren't great. um, And the system is, to be honest with you, a little bit broken. Um, Mm -hmm. Years of backlogs uh, as well have created an untenable situation in the United States where you have millions of high-skilled, high-tech people waiting particularly from Indian and Chinese backgrounds who cannot obtain their green card in any any foreseeable future. I mean, we're talking uh, wait times of 15 to 20 years. Now, if you take a look at Canada and what Canada offers and where people should be turning their attention, first is, uh, in my view, uh, the express entry system for permanent residency, right? Mm-hmm. But the express entry system for permanent residency is related to the global talent stream. And I can Mm. discuss that relationship in a little bit more depth. But express entry is our flagship system for attracting and maintaining skilled permanent immigrants. Whereas Mm. the global talent stream is designed specifically for those in a tech-based occupation, high tech, high skilled work, um, who have offers of employment to work for a Canadian company, or as Mark mm-hmm. will talk about a little bit, um, who are moving the remote work job um, from the United States or elsewhere to Canada. Uh, mm-hmm. So it, it's really about designing a strategy that perhaps makes use of both. But if I'm an F1 OPT worker in the United States who just missed my, missed my lottery chance, start the investigation by looking at the express entry system. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that, I, I think, has to do with age as well, right? And in terms of some of the the, the points around express entry, right? right? In that being the ideal. But I think another theme that that you know Mark and I have talked about, and I know we we've briefly touched on this as well, is GTS to me, global talent stream is almost the method to which you get into Canada and find a, a under a, a job, right? A job offer or some sort of um, employment-based relationship. And then that subsequently can lead to the express entry pathway, right? Because there's a much more weighted, um, points for individuals who are living and and working in Canada. That's absolutely correct, Rob. Absolutely correct. So GTS, if you, if you look at it as an entry point into Canada, whereas, uh, express entry is the system to maintain, um, your stay in Canada and to become mm-hmm. a permanent resident. Um, so the workflow that we often engage in, that would be Mark and I through Path to Canada or Syndesis, is an individual comes and we start with an offer of employment to work in a high-tech occupation to come to Canada through the global talent stream. Mm. And the process is very fast. 
In contrast to the H-1B lottery system in the U.S., the global talent stream is open 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Mm -hmm. It's an online application process where we provide the government of Canada with information about the job offer that is being made to a foreign worker. And you can come from any country in the world and you can be eligible. So there's no discrimination based on nationality, no quotas, none of that. Um, As long as the Canadian company is offering you a good job for a fair wage and a qualifying occupation, and they are an employer who can demonstrate that they can pay you that wage, you can get a work permit through the global talent stream. The initial assessment of the position and company typically takes about two weeks. And the work permit, the visa that you have to then apply for as a worker, that second step, um, the government has a commitment to process those in two weeks or less. However, because of COVID-related backlogs and uh, global uh, crises that seemingly keep unfolding, uh, particularly Mm -hmm. with the situation in Ukraine, uh, the government of Canada has shifted its priorities temporarily. And as a result, we're seeing longer processing for work visas. Um, still, if a person were to start this global talent stream process in, for example, uh, April, you know, you just missed out on your lottery process. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about government processing times that would have you here in Canada, August, maybe September at the latest, still before the mm-hmm. October mark that we would have right. um, under the H-1B process. So are you seeing processing times because of COVID? Is it still impacting the the turnaround for you? Like is 60 days aggressive? Is 90 days more of the average now for, for GTS specifically? Yeah, it, it comes and goes in waves. It's it's I don't know if it's been COVID uh, so much um, as the government of Canada uh, being almost overzealous in its desire to attract skilled immigrants abroad. See, what mm-hmm. the government really did last year um, was create additional programs and opportunities for workers who uh, came to Canada to, to work um, or to study. And as a result, they invited so many people to apply for permanent residency, it created a backlog. So then they had to shift resources uh, from the temporary work permit processing unit over to the permanent residency processing unit, Hmm. right? Uh, In August of last year, I'm not sure if your audience remembers this, but there was also um, uh, the U.S., Canada, and other allied nations um, withdrawing from Afghanistan. And so the government made commitments to bring over um, individuals who had assisted um, the foreign efforts. uh, So the Canada, U.S., and uh, allied efforts there, bring them to Canada, Mm -hmm. Um, and then obviously with the situation in Ukraine, it, it created another backlog. So it was orders. Um, and um, uh, that has resulted in timelines now, I think, pushing more or less 90 days um, mm-hmm. from start to finish uh, when it comes to getting a work permit. I do expect those timelines to, to start to drop. I, I would say if we have this conversation in six months and the timelines haven't gone down to 45 days, I would be surprised. Mm-hmm. Interesting, which is good because time is of the essence in a lot of these situations, right? And and the ability of, you know, you from a legal perspective to turn that around and then relying on the Canadian government and their processing times, right? You know, we, we work under as ifs 
and scenario scenario based logic where we predict we don't know you know with 100% accuracy how long sometimes these these processes can take from you know a bureaucratic perspective um so you've been a canadian immigration attorney for 10 years express entry in and of itself 2015 and gts 2017 in in that timeline over the last 10 years, what's been the biggest change that you've seen as it relates to high skilled immigration to Canada? Uh, the volume, the, the number of people now um, who are applying to come to Canada is astronomical. Um, first of all, I think the word got out, right? Canada is a great place to live um, and has a fair selection system that's open to everyone. And because of that, you know, it's safe, um, stable, uh, a, a great economy sitting on the border of the largest economy of the world and who happens to be our largest trading partner and the American's largest trading partner. Um, it's really created um, a vibe um, that globally has been felt. What I have seen is a shift, a significant shift of tech workers um, and people who uh, were targeting the United States are now targeting Canada. Just to give you an idea of what kind of numbers we're talking about, um, the government of Canada, for just its permanent residency programs, across all programs, has targeted over 400,000 new permanent residency admissions each year for the next three years. That's very ambitious. It's so ambitious, we haven't seen numbers that large since 1913. That was a different time, different, you know, open borders back then where, you know, right. come, you know, if you were a tailor, we need a tailor. Oh, we need a farmer. Come on, come on in. You know, we, that was a different world back then. Mm -hmm. um, but now just that to what we're seeing in, in the level of interest, right? That number as large as it is, is being dwarfed by the level of Canada. Millions of people who want to come. Um, and mm -hmm. so coming to Canada first, on a global talent stream based work permit makes you more competitive for permanent residency. And this part really needs to be emphasized. A person who is coming to Canada through the express entry system is competing against everyone else who is also interested in coming to Canada as a permanent resident, right? You mentioned, mm -hmm. for example, the factor of age, right? When a person mm -hmm. turns 30, you, you start to lose points for age. It's not, a, it's not old, <laughs> right? Um, but education attainment, um, official language proficiency, that would be English or French as it's assessed by uh, language organizations um, that are officially designated for the assessment and work experience. Work experience mm -hmm. outside of Canada is treated differently than work experience inside of Canada. You get more points if you acquire one year, two years, three years of Canadian work experience. And then having an arranged employment offer, right? Mm -hmm. This is coming to Canada on a work permit based on the global talent stream, for example, you get additional points. It makes you more competitive than the candidates who are not in Canada. And that's the tie-in, right? Mm -hmm. If you, maybe you're not 30 years old or 29 years old, you're 35 years old, you're 42 years old, you're over the age of 50, you have a family that you're taking care of. Great, you can come to Canada on a global talent stream based work permit and acquire Canadian work experience and make up for those points that maybe you would have if you were 29. On the other hand, 
your spouse who's coming with you gets an open work visa. It's issued right to at the same time. There, there's no mm -hmm. fighting. There's no additional applications for an employment authorization document, right? There's no question about whether or not your spouse is deserving. There's no pauses for H-4 visa applications and um, politics around the issue. Uh, you know, your children can come and get study visas for Canada and they will accompany you through the whole process right to permanent residency. And then after three years in Canada, you'll be eligible to apply for citizenship. You can get a passport. You can get a Nexus global entry pass to enter the United States by not having to go through customs and immigration every time. You can get a potentially what we call a TN visa as a Canadian citizen to work for American companies as a software engineer, as a systems analyst, as a graphics designer, right? These are all NAFTA, what well, formerly the NAFTA, but mm -hmm. um, occupations under the Canada-US-Mexico agreement that if you have a job offer as a Canadian, you just have to walk up to the border office and say, here's my job offer as a software engineer, here's my degree, and walk in and get a work permit for three years, just like that. It is a wonderful system. People have heard about it. And so the volume has just drastically mm -hmm. increased mm -hmm. and more competitive. And that's where working with someone like Mark and his team um, mm -hmm. who can help you either find employment through Path to Canada or can help you re relocate your employment that you currently have, your remote employment to Canada as a tech worker, is so invaluable. Mm -hmm. So just the sheer volume... I think as you, you talked about that, that to me has been the biggest change. I think a lot of that too, you know, you mentioned open borders, 400,000 is not quite open borders, but it's a really aggressive number. It just, it, it is, it's astronomical. If you think about we're we're talking about 85,000 H1B visas, and then maybe another 30 to 40,000 L1A and L1Bs. Um, you know, if we were to look at, E3s, which are Australian nationals, and add that in, and then even considering TNs, um, we're still probably not at 150,000 um, comparing that to, to Canada. I know that I, I saw some of the numbers maybe last year, the year before, Daniel, uh, in terms of the 400,000 target in Canada was still falling short in regards to you know, the number of uses, right? I think I saw it was maybe 280 or 290,000. That may be on a year or two ago where didn't didn't hit the goal of 400,000, but still incentivizing, um, you know, that yeah. as we, we need people. And, and I've been talking about this a lot here um, with a lot of friends and talking about talent acquisition and a really good friend of mine compares talent acquisition to real estate. And there's this big struggle going on here in the U.S. in the housing market, right? We didn't build enough new houses over the last two years to keep up with demand. Talent acquisition is no different here in the U.S. or Canada. And when you start to look at what is more conducive, what's friendlier, what's going to allow me more freedoms faster, what's going to give my family more freedoms faster, we start to look at the restrictive nature of what the H-1B visa is, and then you start to compare that to GTS and some of the immediacy that comes with it. Um, it goes back to why I partner with Mark. Um, I'm a huge advocate of high-skilled immigration here in the U.S. Anyone who follows this channel knows that. I talk about the talent gap all the time, but I also realize that politically speaking, as you alluded to, the backlogs. 
current calculations say it's 3,500 days just to be able to file your adjustment of status. That's 10 years. That doesn't even mean that you're going to have a green card in your hand, right? So that is the thing where we start to look at like, what are my options? And it's just not about folks here in the U.S. either. I think as we started to see that if you have an age and you have a certain skill set, that even if you don't have U.S.-based experience, but you have high-tech experience, the GTS program is still a viable option for you if you want to get to North America. So my last question for you, Daniel, is this, and I'm going to bring up the link to your website and some of the content that you have on it. Um, but while I do that, if I'm a high skilled immigrant who's watching this now or watching this in the future, when do I need a Canadian immigration attorney? Well, I, I don't want this to come off as sounding biased, but right away, it's a very complex system. Despite the fact that so many people are applying uh, to express entry, what I would term the completion rate of an application is about 65%. There's a lot of individuals who are putting themselves into the express entry pool who then get invited to apply for permanent residency and they don't either file the application within the 60-day deadline they file an incomplete application. It's very technical. Mm. If you miss one document, one document, as minor as a payslip, they could find that your application is incomplete. Mm. Right? Um, so it's very technical. The completion rate or people who do complete their applications then get refused. So if, you're a, th if a third of people are not able to complete their application to become a permanent resident, right? that mm -hmm. tells you something. Um, and keeping in mind that I think the, the, the success rate of a law firm, whether it's mine or anyone else's, is probably a lot higher than that because we know the processes. We file it for clients routinely. The second part is designing a strategy that works for you. Uh, you may not be able to maximize the points on the system on your own. You may not have known about the global talent stream or any other options to increase your points, which mm -hmm. is what you need an attorney for. Uh, you can read all sorts of things on uh online forums about immigration, right? Uh, if you haven't trained in immigration, you haven't gone to law school, you haven't studied the law, it's really, really hard. I, I meet some very capable people um, who seemingly understand the process, they know how to do it, but then they're stuck on the strategy piece. The earlier you find somebody who is competent and capable to help you, the sooner you will be in a position to put your application in and give yourself the best chance to, to succeed. Um, mm -hmm. and, and just one more thing, uh, Rob, that you mentioned before about the numbers of, of, of people who are coming. Um, I just want to make sure we're comparing apples to apples. I'm talking about permanent residency admissions when I mentioned mm -hmm. over 400,000. Over 250,000 are economic immigrants, um, which would be the equivalent of the employment-based uh, preference categories one, two, three, four, five in the United States. In mm -hmm. terms of temporary admissions for workers and uh, students in Canada, we're talking well over a million. It's returned nearly to the pre-pandemic levels. I think we were, we topped out at about 1.8. International students who are studying full-time can work part-time for 20 hours a week. Um, after they graduate, they're eligible for post-graduation permits of up to three years. And temporary workers come in through all sorts of programs, Global Talent Stream, um, something else called the Global Skills Strategy. So mm -hmm. we, ha we have uh, a country that is one-ninth the size of the U.S. And we're punching, you know, pretty high up there um, mm -hmm. with, with our rate in terms of admissions. 
um, for both permanent and temporary residents. So it's it's mm -hmm. very, very competitive. There's a lot of spots, but it's still very, very competitive. Um, and I would not recommend that any of your audience who is listening today or watching today, wait. The number one rule in immigration is if you qualify now, you apply now. Because getting older, you'll quite literally lose points and become less competitive. Um, and we see changes to the system all the time that mm -hmm. puts people in a situation where they're not able uh, to compete anymore. Or they simply change the program criteria. It does happen from time to time. Mm -hmm. So start now. Don't wait. That's great advice. Yeah, I, it goes back to um, what I say all the time when I, I talk about Syndesis and Path to Canada, and it's it's don't get caught off guard, right? Like, you need to know this is how the system works, and it doesn't necessarily work for you. It works against you. And so, you know, make sure that you don't get caught off guard. Don't wait as as you, your, your point there. Um, I have at the very bottom here a link, um, Daniel, to your website, dmanuelbaum.com, uh, and then uh, forward slash immigration hyphen freedom hyphen plan. Um, there's also a link to this in the description of the video below. Um, so if, if you'd like to be in touch with Daniel, um, please feel free, hit this link, and uh, you can find out more about um, Manuel Baum Immigration Lawyers as well. Daniel, I had one last question, then I want to move on to Mark, who sat here very patiently. Thank you so much, Mark, for, for that. Um, but Daniel, I wanted to ask you really quickly, you know, maybe like two minutes. Um, recently in the news, uh, the, the PMP, Provisional Nominee Program, um, I know that's been in the news here recently um, over the last few weeks. And if you could maybe just add some color around it and, and kind of let us know what PMP is and, and what that means. Sure. So the reason why everyone's talking about provincial nominee programs, PNPs, uh, is due to the government's current pause on invitations through the express entry system to our other categories. That would be the federal skilled worker, typically for persons who are high skilled outside of Canada, uh, the Canadian experience class. So that's been paused in September of 2021. So the federal skilled worker, by the way, was December 2020, uh, Canadian experience um, and uh, skilled trades, September 2021. Uh, PNP represents a different pathway for persons to apply for immigration to Canada through a sponsorship by a province. You must intend to move to that province in order to apply. And there are multiple streams. So we have programs run by the provinces. We have streams, which further establish criteria. And then we have systems. So without getting too complicated in a two-minute discussion, <laughs> What your audience yeah. needs to take away from this um, is, 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 is one simple fact. 13 provinces and territories, multiple programs for skilled workers, entrepreneurs, investors, and international students, multiple streams depending on your occupation, job offer, employment-based, non-employment-based, and multiple systems, by invitation only or not by invitation only. Do the yeah. math. 13 times programs times streams times systems yes. we're into the hundreds of different options for immigrating to canada through pnp right mm -hmm. so back to your earlier question do you need an immigration lawyer yes <laughs> you, you teed it up for me i was gonna say i i know a really good one and it's dmanuelbaum.com okay um but 
appreciate you shedding some some context on that to think about 13 different provinces and all of the varieties of talent demand within those and what that creates is is very interesting um so i appreciate you know kind of the quick update there on the pmp and again it, it looks like just from a sheer demand standpoint it, it only continues to to increase um so wanted to just really quickly take two seconds. If you haven't already, please like this video, subscribe to the H1B Guy channel here on YouTube. If you have any questions or comments, I know there's a couple in the chat. We've gotten a couple from Twitter. We're going to get to those in about uh, 10, uh, 15 minutes. Uh, but I wanted to uh, turn it over to Mark. And so, Mark, I'm going to bring up a graphic really quickly. And we've okay. talked about this a good bit, but if you are a individual in the U.S. Um, that needs to have a plan B. If you are a U.S. employer that has an individual who needs a plan B, there are two different options. So here's here's our graphic here. Two options for tech workers in the U.S. to get to Canada. So the first option is, one, move your current U.S. job to Canada, and we would do that via Syndesis. The other option is, Number two, get hired by a Canadian tech company via yes. Path to Canada. Uh, and that's also, I would say, more in line with, with the GTS program that, that we've mentioned. Um, so, Mark, I'm going to bring you up and, uh, you know, nice to see you this afternoon. And, and thanks for, for hopping on here again. Um, always love having you on. It's my, my privilege and, and uh, honor to be partnered with you guys um, and all the work that, that you do and making sure that high-skilled immigrants here in the U.S. and even outside the U.S. have options. Um, so where are you seeing your demand right now, Mark? Is it more in U.S. employers looking to relocate jobs to Canada? Or is it individuals um, who are seeking employment in Canada and looking for a, a recruitment or consulting firm to help them do that? Uh, it's definitely split more um, towards the workers. Um, so thanks, Robert, for highlighting the, the options and Daniel for mapping out the immigration options. So and I, I think the, the graphic, as you put it up, splits them out very well. The, the first one basically is what we call it, move your job to Canada. It's a combination, Robert, of having both the employer and the employee on board. So in that scenario, that is as you mentioned, OPT expiration, it's where usually it's it. what we see. It's the, the companies have no idea. We've talked to many HR execs in the US and the result, the, the response from them is always a level of shock on the phone call because what we'll hear them say is, look, we went through a lot of expense, time, um, stress, and things didn't work out in the lottery. And we assumed that the worker would have to leave the US and then all of a sudden we you know, saw a reference to your company or the, or the worker approached us and said, well, we can just move my job to Canada and I can just work remotely. Like I'm working remotely in the U.S. It can be remotely in Canada. And we say, yes, exactly. That's it. So what we usually find is U.S. companies have no idea this is an option. There's no there's no publicity about it. But as Daniel said, the program, the global talent stream program has been in place for years. So on one hand, it's usually the worker bringing this to their manager. And then we all get on a call together and then and they're them walking through how that can work on the other side the option the second option you put up with for path to canada that is that is strictly we see the goal of that is 
it's worker driven. It's someone looking at their situation and saying, I need to take control of my destiny for my career, for my life. The US, either I'm facing an OPT expiration, my company's not going to move my job. What can I do utilizing Canadian immigration to get to Canada? And the option there is Path to Canada, where it's a marketplace. We're connecting immigrant tech workers with Canadian companies who want to hire them, sponsor their work visa, and bring them in. Mm -hmm. And tech specifically in STEM. Correct. Just want to make sure we we've get, gotten a lot of questions when I've had you on before around medical. And I think a lot of the complications there center around the licensing um, exactly. for medical professionals in, in Canada. So from a syndesis or even a path to Canada perspective, uh, we're really talking about STEM specifically in, in tech. Um so of your clients that you have right now that are that are hiring um, under the path to Canada umbrella, right? Because that's where a lot of the individual demand comes from. What are some of the, 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 the key skill sets that you're seeing demand for right now? Across every tech stack, Ruby on Rails, Java, Python. So I've... I've... I've been on these calls with the Canadian companies where they'll say, oh, we've got three open jobs, four open jobs, seven, 10. They're listing off all the jobs, the skill stack, the skill sets they're looking for, but it is all over the place. Uh, mm -hmm. It can be for DevOps um, background, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, natural language processing, all, all over the place, including mm -hmm. the managers and the leads of this group. So luckily Global Talentstream has a, provision it's not just are you a uh, stem worker and you're coding also if you're the leader of such a group it's you have a it's available for you too mm -hmm. yeah and i i think the interesting thing about that mark is python ruby react java i i mean the data data ai machine learning I mean, these are things from an innovation and, um, you know, cutting edge standpoint, we're, we see that same demand here in the U.S. And so the interesting thing is, as you start to look at where, where, where do individuals migrate and what is the innovation and tech that they, they bring with them? And this comes back to why are Canadian companies looking for this tech stack? Well, this is a global arms race, really, if we think about the war on talent that, that's happening. And I, I think that to me, that's what lends itself to um, when you start to look at Canada's openness, right, and, and how they handle high tech. And we talked about this a good bit to mark kind of the quality of life. Of, of living and working in Canada and some of the, 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 the cost differences, right? And, yeah. you know, one of the things about the PMP that, you know, when Daniel was talking about 13 different provinces and I see that, it makes me go, gosh, where do I want to live, right? Wh which is the one that provides me um, with the highest quality of life, the lowest uh, cost of living, but the access to the, the most opportunity. And so... I'm curious if you're seeing a specific area like, you know, Toronto always comes to mind, kind of dominates the landscape when U.S. Uh, employers think about Canada in general. But are you seeing a specific area, geographically speaking, where there's greater demand? 
You covered it. It's Toronto. So Toronto, I think, and Daniel can correct me if this number is, if I'm off, but it's a minimum of 50% of all immigrants to Canada go to Toronto. In terms of like where the Canadian tech jobs are, it's Toronto. If you talk to, it's not only Canadian companies, but as Daniel pointed out, U.S. companies slowly start to figure this out and realize, hey, we could open a branch in Canada. And then we could sign up with Canadian Immigration for Global Talent Stream and bring people in. You start mm-hmm. to see U.S. companies doing that. And that's also, Path to Canada is a marketplace. We connect global tech workers, the majority of which are in the U.S., but we people from around the world come to the, to the website. We connect them with Canadian and corporate companies in Canada. Mm-hmm. The majority of them are, you know, originally Canadian companies, but there's also U.S. companies that open office and say, I can't handle the H-1B anymore. I want surety. I want to know that when I give, I have an interview with someone that I can look at a time frame, 90, 100 days, person's in, I can look at surety of the system working. It's not random like a lottery. It's you have a, you have a conversation with an immigration lawyer like Daniel. He says you qualify. Mm-hmm. The process goes. There is no mm-hmm. amb- ambiguity to it. It works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting because the gr- eliminating the gray area in immigration is, I think, something that lends itself to interest from not only individuals here in the U.S. that have migrated, but also outside of the U.S. And I think that's the one thing, Mark, you and I have talked about is, you know, it isn't just about individuals currently in the U.S., but those individuals that are currently in the U.S. that have two to three years of U.S.-based experience are in greatest demand in 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 canada in tech specifically and i I think that 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 lends itself a lot to who my audience is right 80 percent of folks who watch this channel are in the us um most of which are are high skilled immigrants or us employers and so we we start to kind of go back to you've got to have other options and so that that's where you know ultimately um in the link to the video description here um, on YouTube, as well as on my website, I have links to um, the Syndesis and Path to Canada landing page to which there are both options. You can see if you qualify. Um, if you are an individual, Path to Canada is your option. If you're looking for an opportunity in Canada, working with, with Path to Canada to help you find that right next opportunity is key. If you're a U.S. employer or if you're an individual in the U.S. that needs to relocate your job to Canada, that's where the Syndesis um, line of business comes into play. And, and that's done through, you know, what we call a, you call a PEO specifically in, in Canada. Um, you work for as a permanent employee of Syndesis in Canada. Um, and it's a very you know seamless process. I will warn any U.S. employers who are watching this, though, it's not a cheap endeavor, but the biggest but to that that I always say is what is the cost of replacement? Mark, yes. we talk about this a lot, right? Like I'm going to lose this individual. I'm going to post a job. I know that there are currently over 2 million plus job postings in tech here in the U.S., right? So that goes back to that talent shortage that we've talked about. And how do I fill a position with somebody who's now worked for me for a year, 18 months, two years, who's a per- proven employee, who I trust to perform a role and responsibility within my organization, what is the monetary value on losing that individual? And to me, I always come back to the equation of losing that individual. And that loss is much greater than the cost of relocating that individual 
um, via, you know, Syndesis's arm as well. I know I have a lot of recruitment professionals who, who watch my content, um, a lot of recruiters out there. So I always want to make sure that we highlight, you know, that, that piece of it, that, what is the actual cost of the loss, right? And how does that relate to the, the cost of, of, of moving the position? Um, so wanted to just mention really quickly, if you have any questions or comments, we're gonna move on to the QA portion here. We've got a couple questions. I've got a couple more questions that, that I wanna ask um, both of you specifically, um, but please feel free to drop any questions or comments that you have in the chat. Uh, just a quick reminder, um, you know, again, there are links in the description to Daniel's uh, website and also to uh, the Syndesis and Path to Canada to find out if you qualify. Please be sure to use those links. Someone from um, their organization will definitely be in touch if, if you do meet certain parameters there. So I wanted to bring up this question, Daniel. It was is really addressed to you specifically, um, but it, it came up during our, our conversation. It says, since the volume of applications appear to be increasing do you think canada will eventually cap the amount of visas permanent residents being offered yeah i don't see a cap being introduced on temporary work visas through the global talent stream for example the volumes that we have although they're increasing um, year to year just don't justify that um, in terms of permanent residency um, the better framing of the question isn't about caps for Canada. We abolished caps when we uh, adopted the express entry system. Um, so prior to that, every program would have caps and you'd have to put in your application and the sooner the better because it, it could cap out, um, you know, uh, at various points in the year, September, October, usually. Um, in one year, actually, a few years before, it, it capped out in April. Um, what Express Entry did was gave the government the ability to control the flow. Um, and so you could just turn on the tap, increase the volume by inviting more candidates or decrease the volume by inviting fewer candidates. Mm -hmm. um, and so because the government now has that control, right, they can play with the different taps for the different programs and then hit their target. Right. So we don't we don't talk about caps anymore. We talk about targets and how the government hits those targets. Well, they can control how, who gets to apply. You can't apply unless you are invited. So that's the key thing here. You can express your interest, but can't apply until they tell you now you can apply. Interesting. That's that's really interesting that 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 process is it's by invite. Right. Um Whereas we have people here begging, you know, for, for a date to come up. And, you know, again, as I alluded to earlier, waiting 3,500 plus days to, to get there. Um, one other question from, from the same individual. Would you say, uh, what would you say is the reason the systems give preference to junior professionals? Uh, those individuals less than 30 years old rather than potentially more experienced senior ones. You know, I've been asking myself that question for years. It's a great question. Mm -hmm. um, the, the immigration doesn't have to make sense. <laughs> That's the answer. Um, right. The government of Canada has designed an immigration system um, that, um, while it has you know great potential, um, is inherently discriminatory based on factors that they have rather arbitrarily defined, right? Why mm -hmm. does a person who has 
um, who, who is 28 years old get more points than someone who's 32 years old? What's the reason for that, right? There's really no reason other than they had to figure out a way to choose um, a candidate. Um, you know, uh, the way I liken it to is, let's suppose uh, a company wants to hire a skilled worker for a job. They create mm -hmm. minimum criteria in the job posting. And they say, you need to have um, a bachelor's degree, three years of relevant work experience and strong communication skills. That doesn't mean somebody with two years of work experience or a uh, associate's degree, a two-year associate's diploma, um, can't do the job. Uh, it just means a lot of applicants and they have to come up with criteria for distinguishing them. So age was just another criteria. The government does provide a justification. Um, and uh, apparently there was a long-term study that evaluated immigrants' successes at economically establishing in Canada. And they pointed to education attainment, language proficiency, number of years of work experience before coming in age. And what they found was this candidate who was in their 20s with a bachelor's degree and a few years of high-skilled work experience tended to have um, the best economic outcomes. So it was study-based. Um, the reality, though, since they introduced express entry in 2015, is that the type of candidate that they were seeing um, just they, they weren't expecting to see the kind of volume, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think they were intending to say, if you were 40 years old, don't apply, right? Uh, in fact, if you're 34 years old, you may not even have the points. That wasn't the initial intention. Uh, the, the data showed that no immigrants who were in their early 30s had young families, even into their 40s, could be successful if they had those other factors. They just didn't realize that there would be such a large pool of people mm -hmm persons that were in their 20s with master's degrees who had multiple years of high school work experience applying for Canada. Mm -hmm. Right? Goes back well, to the volume. Sorry. It, the UK, Australia, and I believe New Zealand also have the age weighted value in it as well. And the interesting thing about that is I saw a statistic um, here in the US from a couple weeks ago, and it talked about US companies targeting specifically individuals with three to five years of experience, and how many uh, the, the amount of job postings that is only looking for three to five years of experience. And a lot of that goes back to one cost, but two, the opportunity for longevity. And I think a lot of that is what it what it gets back to. How long is that individual going to contribute within the the society as a whole? Um, age is just a part of those points values, but so are spouses, right? It's it's interesting when you see the spouse's uh, resume being put on the line from a points perspective for merit. Um, and and I think that that to me is something that I've always harped on here, and I always have thought that is absolutely insane. Is that and H-1B individual has work authorization tied to an employer, but their spouse has no work authorization until that, until their spouse, the H-1B holder, gets to the second step of the green card process and has an approved I-140. And until that is the case, the H-4 dependent has no work authorization here in the U.S., um, whereas like the L 
one, for example, comes with work authorization for the L2, and it's now immediate here in the U.S. It's done at the the, the CBP, um, and so it, it it to me comes back to why would we want to eliminate the workforce when we can increase it? When we start to look at the talent shortages, and I think that that's the thing for me when I look at what I believe Canada is doing right, and I've always been a huge proponent of the merit-based system. I, I get GTS as the viable option for temporary, but it gets you there and then it gets you earning those those points, right? Because now you've been living and working in Canada, you've been working as a full-time employee, it gets you there. Um, so we've got question or time for like one more question before we wrap up here at the top of the hour. Um, so any of you out there who are currently watching, if you have a question or a comment, please drop that in the chat like right now so that if you have a question for Daniel or a question for Mark, um, drop that in the chat. I, I wanted to ask one like quick question for the two of you, but in, in the it's around this. If I am a foreign national looking to get into an advanced degree program, am I still better suited coming to the U.S., getting a U.S. master's, gaining experience working under OPT or OPT STEM, and then trying to get into Canada? Or am I better off considering an advanced master's degree program in Canada? And what kind of pathway does that offer me in, in Canada from a work authorization perspective? So I guess I can start that conversation, um, that answer. And Mark, um, you can talk about the employability of that person. Um, if you do come to Canada and you study, for example, a master's program, um, after you graduate from that program, you may be eligible for what we call a post-graduation work permit. It's open, you can work for any employer anywhere in Canada. Um, and having a Canadian degree from a Canadian institution and an open work authorization that can be up to three years in length, um, you know, basically would not discourage an employer. In fact, you, you'd probably be treated just like any other Canadian applying for that job. Um, so Mark, you can talk about the um, value of those degrees. I know you earned a, a degree from a, a Canadian university, mm -hmm. so I'll, I'll pass that to you. Yeah, it's a really great question. So like speaking as an American, yeah, do we have great universities? Like I'm based in New York, obviously, yeah. Mm -hmm. But do I also know like from when I lived in New York in the past and I and as Daniel, you mentioned, I went to Canada's top business school for my MBA. There are great schools in Canada. And if you were asking I think I saw some number um, hires in tech in Silicon Valley. University of Waterloo was like top three or four. Like it's a, it's a, it's like Canada's. I call it Canada's MIT. So there are amazing schools in Canada. But I know what Robert's specifically asking for is a strategy of, you know, if you have a choice, go into go into the U.S., go into Canada, get at the university level, and then you just mapped out how it can work for getting a, getting work authorization and getting onto a path for PR versus in the U.S. It seems like the U.S. easy to come into work to be a student for sure. Do you have three years of chances to to win the the lottery? Yeah, but then when you if you hit that wall at that point, then you have to leave. Yeah. I would still say like I would. I, it's hard to choose. Answer your question, Robert. Choose one or the other because yeah, either way, the U.S. degree is going to have international cachet for the rest of your life. If it mm -hmm. if you can't stay in the U.S., decent can offer you the option yeah. to move to Canada and build your life there. US and degrees it, are highly respected. 
And you're right, Mark, it's, it's a choice between chance in the US or mm -hmm. competition in Canada. So you're getting an advanced degree, you have the opportunity to gain Canadian work experience after that people from outside of Canada don't have unless they can find an employer get willing to get them a global talent stream work visa. Um, and so, I don't know, if, if it's me, I, I would like to control my destiny a little bit more. I would rather compete um, than leave it up to a lottery. Mm -hmm. That's my personal preference, but I, I guess everyone yeah. has their own perspective on that. Yeah, I, I mean, I will continue to say the U.S. is a plan A, but I also realize that the restrictive nature to which we grant work authorization to high skilled immigrants isn't conducive to the current global environment and economy and this digital society that that we're all living and and working with. Um, Daniel, Mark, I could talk about this for another hour, um, but I just you know I really appreciate both of you coming on. Um, Daniel, thank you for lending your expertise here. And, and Mark, it's always just a, a privilege and a pleasure to, to have you on and understand how, you know, from concept to, to fundamentally helping individuals change their lives, their families' lives and their career paths. This is something that I think you and I just have in common. And, um, you know, ultimately, it's why I just really appreciate your partnership and uh, getting the word out about Syndesis and, and Path to Canada's offerings. Um, of course, you can find Daniel uh, at, at dmanuelbaum.com. Uh, uh, links in the video description. Um, he's on Twitter. Uh, Mark's on Twitter. You can find them both. I've tagged them out there um, in, in some of the Twitter posts that I've put out there. Um, gentlemen, I'd love to have you back on sometime, maybe uh, uh, sometime towards the fall or, or beginning of uh, towards the end of the year. Uh, to talk about, you know, hey, what's what's changed and and what hasn't. Um, but I do want to go ahead and um, and wrap this up. If you are a failed H-1B lottery attempt this year and you're wondering what is next for you, I think we've laid out what your options are. But really, it, it comes back to Syndesis and Path to Canada are the ideal plan Bs for high skilled immigrants currently located in the U.S. whose status may be uncertain. And if you're facing an H-1B denial, an OPT expiration, a failed lottery attempt, Syndesis and Path to Canada um, are your answers. They'll gladly help you navigate the process. If you're interested in finding out if you qualify, use the link in the description below. You can find it on the h1bguy.com. Mark and his team do an amazing job of communicating if this can be an option for you or not. And now you know the guy on the back side of it that's going to make sure that everything is legit. And, and that's Daniel. And Daniel just does amazing work. Um, he's a trusted partner of Syndesis and Path to Canada. And, um, you know, just really, again, appreciate both of you coming on. Of course, this stream was brought to you by Syndesis and Path Canada and also by my, my good friends at perm-ads.com the industry leader in providing a seamless experience for employers and immigration attorneys navigating the complex perm recruitment ad phase of the labor certification process. Um, Daniel, thanks. Really appreciate it. Hope you have a great Friday. Um, Mark, thank you so much. Uh, really appreciate you taking time here to, to, to join me this afternoon. Um, but if you haven't already, make sure you like this video, subscribe to the H1B Guy channel here on YouTube, Click the bell for notifications so that you're notified anytime we go live like we did here today, April 8th at 1 p.m. Eastern. You can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Telegram. Um, I'm Robert. 
I'm the H-1B guy, your global source for all things H-1B.